Hello, all you leadership educators out there, and welcome to Real Leadership for Real People, the NASPA SLP KC podcast, where we amplify true stories of leadership education. I'm your host, Kathy Guthrie, and I serve as a faculty member in the higher education program at Florida State University. And I am your co-host, Cameron Beatty, also serving as a faculty member in the higher education program at Florida State University. We are so excited to be joined by Dr. Antron Mahoney, who will be sharing his thoughts on the culturally relevant leadership learning model. Um, but first, maybe, Kathy, we could do a quick check-in. What's been yes. going on? What's on your mind? Oh, goodness. You know, and I think what's on my mind is because of our guest today. Dr. Antron Mahoney. Um, a quick story about our guest, which this is, leads into what's on my mind, is we were going to, Antron and I were going to a national leadership symposium, and I don't even know what year it was. And we were on a flight and we sat next to each other and we talked the entire time. But one of the parts of that conversation that I remember is just the deep need for reflection in all that we do and how that our work as leadership educators starts with ourselves and how do we continue to reflect on that. And so I remember just, you know, that's such a broad topic, right? Reflection and the need for our own self-work. But I remember having that time that was such a gift with Antron to have that conversation after going to a national leadership symposium that NASPA co-sponsors, as we all know. And so I think it was a powerful moment. So yeah, I've been thinking about reflection a lot, especially with what has happened these last 18 months, um, all the complexities and now what, what we're into in the fall and we, a lot of uncertainty still. And so thinking about, about that, what about you, Cameron? No, I, I'm going to go down that. I'm going to stay with you with the reflection because I, you know, I had a workout this, I had a mental workout this morning with my trainer, also my therapist, uh, who was like really thinking about, you know, what, what do I want the next year to look like? And how do I be reflective and, and really thinking about what I want that to look like in order to manifest, you know, these goals that I have. Um, and I, be, and I, you know, think about that in, different aspects of my life and thinking about leadership education and teaching this fall. As you know, I haven't, I, I had a sabbatical last year and getting back into the classroom. And some, some people say it's a, it's like riding a bike, but in other aspects, I'm like, okay, right, right. Like we can't, I can't enter it this the same way that I entered this in the past because, you know, we just got, we're in the middle of a pandemic where we hadn't seen each other face to face. And I want the learning experience to be engaging, but also dynamic, but also put into context of where we are in place and time and can't be ignored. I don't think we should ignore place and time when thinking about leadership education. So I was looking at my syllabus. I'm like, uh, some, something's got to change. We're like, what does that mean? And what does that look like? And that's what I've been sitting with lately in the reflective space. Oh, you know, and I think that goes back to uh, our guest who I want to officially introduce, Dr. Antron Mahoney. But I think that that is like, how do we not do the same old stuff, right? We need to change and how are we moving forward? And I think um, Antron has been pivotal in that, in my own thinking, and I think in a lot of people's thinking regarding the culturally relevant leadership learning model. And so um, Antron is currently an assistant professor at Ohio Wesleyan University in Africana Gender and Identity Studies. Prior to um, him becoming faculty, which getting, you know, he went full time for his PhD and then has served in faculty roles for how how many years now, Antron? 
Uh, it's been what this uh, two years, two, two three years. years. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, like, the pandemic kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm like, how many years has it been? Yes. <laughs> but you know, I, as I mentioned about the pivotal pieces in the 2016 New Directions for Student Leadership, Antron wrote an amazing piece that really challenged people to think about leadership studies, leadership education whether that's in curricular or co-curricular, but the walls of whiteness that show up. And I think that was pivotal and continues to come up in conversations. And then in 2017, you also did a article for the Journal of Leadership Studies talking about the need for storytelling and emotions and why that was important for culturally relevant leadership learning. And then of course, we do have um, the narrative that you wrote for the operationalizing yeah. <laughs> leadership learning. But I think that that is so important. So thank you for joining us and just sharing yourself and your brilliance with us today. Well, well, thank you all for having me. Um, I like to say that um, I, I don't technically have a degree from Florida State University, <laughs> but my time there was so um, pivotal for me. Um, and a lot of that has been because I got the chance to work with folks like you all, uh, particularly Kathy and, and, um, and Laura Osteen and others. Um, and so for me, I feel like I um, informally have a degree from Florida State um, and, and kind of like an honorary higher ed um, alum there um, yeah. because of all of the learning and growth that I had there and the opportunities that were presented to me to, to do some of those pieces that you just spoke about. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. And I, I was saying before the recording started that you developed early on a leadership for social justice class before people were talking or using those terms, social justice, and it's still taught every semester at Florida State. And so your legacy is strong, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Oh, yeah. And Sean, something we've been doing with our guests, just so the listeners can get to know you better, is asking a series of kind of questions um, and just to get us started and kind of ease into the conversation. So the first question that we love for you to engage with is, what song do you love to sing when you are the only person in the car? Okay, so this, this is a tough question because I, I love music and I love to sing. Um, one of the things, particularly when I was at Florida State, I did karaoke all the time and got as many people to go to karaoke with me. So one song is tough. Um, probably, I'm an R&B head, so um, anything Mary J. Blige. Um, I really like Mary J. Blige. Um, I Can Love You with Lil' Kim. I only like the version with Lil' Kim in it. Anything else is blasphemy. Um, I also like a Whitney Houston, um, I Wanna Dance With Somebody. Um, that song in particular, because I would never try to do that at karaoke because I don't have the chops, but um, in the car, I go for it, so. <laughs> I really think I Wanna Dance With Somebody is the most difficult song to sing, like the, 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 Cicada, what is it? Cicada, what's the word? What's the music word? Like that song is so difficult, even for singers. Like, she, oh yes, yeah, no, it is. Yeah. I'm like, even even at the the you know karaoke, there's a very low standard <laughs> of skill that comes with karaoke, and even at that standard, I would not attempt it in public. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. Okay, so the next question is, if you could only eat one food or meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? 
Um, probably pizza. Oh, I that, yeah. I know that's probably yeah. Like maybe um, you know, uh, kind of average or 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 you know the norm. But yeah, probably pizza. I love pizza, um, and I feel like you can't go wrong with that. And so many ways to prepare it. Right, you wouldn't get bored. I'm with yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like you got a little bit of everything, all good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. When we were preparing, that was Kathy's exact answer. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah. All right. Last question, which I think is fitting for for the podcast and for our conversations today. What first? Who or what first sparked your interest in leadership? Uh, yeah, this is a good question. Um, probably music um i all through like um high school middle school i was involved in music programs um i you know the first understanding of probably leadership particularly as, as how it directly relates to me was my role as as like drum major of my high school marching band <laughs> right it's a very formal you know positional understanding of leadership but that's the first time where I actually felt like okay I am leading something or someone in some way um and so that's probably probably my first where I really first started thinking about leadership um and thinking about all right what am I doing here how am I going to do it how am I going to galvanize my peers here um but even prior to that probably just music in general um and just thinking about um, collective organization and how do we collectively um, um, produce and create something new and different, right? Um, I think these are all things that at the time I probably did not, you know, have this consciousness about these things happening. But when I look at my work and my career, oftentimes I go back to that space of music and thinking about harmony and blending and all of those things and how those things really translate into understanding leadership yes that yes the harmony the blending and impromptu nature of it sometimes right yes, like right 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 <laughs> to be able to improvise yeah definitely. right I do and I love when people talk about leadership as art because yes <laughs> it definitely is well thank yeah. you for sharing that and as you know this season on the NASPA SLPKC podcast we are focusing on socially just and culturally relevant leadership learning and you did write a narrative for an upcoming book that Cameron and I had the honor of writing, um, operationalizing culturally relevant leadership learning. But as I had mentioned before, you have some pivotal pieces already out there that constantly come up in conversation, which I think is incredible. And so um, can you talk a little bit about all of those pieces? Um, yeah. Um, so... I think uh, when I um, think about how I have, um, you know, taken up culturally relevant leadership learning, I think um, the question, I think that's at the center of all of those pieces um, is thinking about how do we make sure that um, we don't leave out those who are most vulnerable, um, are those who are the most marginalized um, within our communities. Because um, oftentimes, as we um, kind of shift this paradigm within leadership studies, where we're now starting to incorporate difference, and we're starting to think about, um, um, you know, different culturally um, 
uh, relevant perspectives um, as it relates to leadership, um, that, that we also have to keep in mind how leadership can act as this kind of vehicle for privilege and power, right? Even as we're trying to incorporate difference within this framework. And so I think the question that I keep going back to at, at, you know, in all of these pieces and as we uh, continue to think about culturally relevant leadership learning is um, who is it that we might be leaving out? Um, and, and how do we address um, those individuals, those communities um, through this paradigm? Because we have to be careful because even though this paradigm is, um, is aims to really uh, critique and and um, and and you know create new forms of, of equity um, around power and difference within leadership studies, it can also reinforce those things. Um, and and so I think that's what's really at the heart of 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 those pieces that I've written so far. And the narrative actually is called leadership is defiance, I believe, or defiance is leadership. Yeah. Uh, deviance. Yeah. Deviance. Oh, I'm sorry. Defiance. Yeah. yeah. No. So can you talk about that? I apologize. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, can- yeah. Uh, and so I, this piece, I think, is, is falls in line with some of those uh, prior pieces that I've um, written. Um, in this piece, I'm really looking at how do we expand or think about culturally relevant leadership learning um, through this framework of deviance here. Um, and, and, what, and I'm pulling on some work from um, Kathy Cohen. Uh, Kathy Cohen is a noted black feminist, queer political scientist um, who um, in the early 2000s wrote this seminal piece around deviance um, and, and black politics, right? Um, and so I'm pulling from this piece um, to really think about how we might think about deviance and this kind of deviance framework as a way to enact or to understand culturally relevant leadership learning. Um, and so there's probably like a couple of things where I, I see the overlap. So some of this is that there's, there's parallels in this framework of deviance and what, culture, and what I see culturally relevant leadership learning trying to do, right? One is that, um, again, as I just pointed out that culturally relevant leadership learning um, pays particular attention to difference and how we're starting to think about difference within the higher ed setting and how we um, and how leadership studies is kind of responding to that difference, right? Really shifting away from this kind of great man narrative or even in this kind of even transformative kind of leadership models that don't um, take into consideration, um, you know, race, gender, sexuality, um, and so forth. And so as leadership studies is kind of responding to this difference, um, we also have to recognize that it is happening within this kind of institutional setting, uh, particularly within higher ed, where there's a normalizing framework that happens there, that oftentimes when we, the things that we recognize, the things that we see are those that fit within the institutional setting, right? And, and, and and those who are accepted and affirmed within institutional settings usually have some proximity to this kind of white cis heteropatriarchal um, kind of logic or narrative, right? Um, and so, um, what you know, um, I think this parallel between 
culturally relevant leadership learning and deviance is that this, these institutions, these kind of structural pieces determine for, for, for leadership studies, it determines what we identify as leadership or leaders and, and what we you know, don't identify as leadership or as leaders, right? And for when we think about deviance, uh, Kathy Cohen um, and her framework around deviance is asking a similar question. Who do we look at as being legitimate and, and who do we look at as being deviant? Those who kind of fall outside of those kind of institutional boundaries and frameworks, right? And so there's a similar questions around what role does um, institutional structures play in what we recognize or who we recognize, what we see, what we don't see, right? And I think that brings, brings me to, I think the third piece where I think um, CRL, L, um, uh, I think does a great job as um, kind of bringing to the forefront here is this idea of institutional setting and that, that, that the institutional climate, the institutional culture plays a big role, not only in students' leadership learning, but I think for us as researchers and as scholars, we also have to recognize that we are also embedded within these institutions. And because we're embedded within these institutions, um, that also plays a part into what we see and what we recognize. And so what this piece does is really try to push myself and others, um, leadership researchers and scholars to kind of see beyond the institution, right? And how do we um, recognize, uh, research, study, the leadership that is happening that falls outside of those institutional walls um, and those institutional boundaries, particularly with our students, um, because um, again, because of how the institution is set up, um, those students who are not in proximity to these uh, powers of privilege, oftentimes don't do that work within institutional settings and frameworks. And, and Antron, I think that's just so, so important, especially for those that have read culturally relevant leadership learning before, because it reimagines how to think about it and apply it. And those that haven't read it yet, it gives you a lens to enter into and be reflect to our earlier conversation and be reflective. So, so thank you again. And thank you again for your contribution, your narrative contribution to the book. Uh, we were hoping that you could share a bit more about your own lived experience, both professional and personal that have shaped your understanding of leadership and how you actually practice and engage in, in leadership? Yeah, um, I think, you know, a lot of my work, um, particularly when I'm thinking about culturally relevant leadership learning is really shaped around being a black queer, um, you know, black queer man growing up in the South <laughs> in many ways. Um, and, um, always kind of feeling as the kind of outsider within, as you know, a lot of black feminist scholars have, have coined that. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, I recognize through my own lived experiences is that, um, is this kind of duality that is there around, um, uh, there's what the institution, um, and kind of, yeah, what the institution and what the dominant culture sees, but then there's always this subculture and this kind of intro work that is happening, right? Um, and so um, kind of case in point, um, a lot of, you know, this narrative that I wrote for this, this latest piece 
is based off of some of my work that I did with my around my dissertation that looks at um, uh, black Greek letter fraternities and um, and black fraternal culture, right? Um, and I'm also a member of a of a, a black Greek letter fraternity, and so I think about that experience as being a black queer person in a a very cis heteronormative <laughs> type of environment. And, and when I think about that experience and think about my role as a leader within that experience, that there is, it is the public facing work that happens there around leadership. Um, there is the institutional work that happens there through kind of formal roles and membership. But then there's also the kind of countercultural work that is happening kind of within the organization around and with other black queer folks and how we make space within and through those structures that is oftentimes not seen and not recognized, right? And when I think about that experience and I think about what is most important to me in that experience, oftentimes it is the work that people don't see. <laughs> it is that intro um, kind of sub-community countercultural work where uh, kind of black queer folks are making space for themselves within structures um, that, that don't all the way, all the time speak to them and are not conducive for them, right? Um, and so that helps me to raise questions around. So, you know, oftentimes we don't call that work leadership work, um, but I know that it is, uh, right? And so that helps me to also think about raise questions and, and how do I uh, think about the same experience, not only within this kind of black Greek paternal world, but also within larger institutional settings, um, particularly within the college campus. I'm pausing because I'm thinking through some of that. So thank you for sharing and your storytelling, right? Because I think that is so important um, to share those narratives. And, and you started talking about this a little bit, um, but if you could share more ideas of what informs your thinking outside of leadership education? Since mm -hmm. I know your PhD work and where you currently serve as a faculty is not in higher ed, but can you talk more? You started talking about Kathy Cohen's work, but that would be great in hearing about your approach and what informs it. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, I have an interesting path um, to, I guess, to this faculty role. Um, um, I started out in higher ed I uh, got my master's from um, um, UNCG, and then um, uh, yeah. my last role within student affairs was at uh, Florida State, spent five years there. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to go back, work on the PhD. Um, and a lot of that was through this experience that I've had up until that point, uh, really wrestling with questions around um, race, gender, sexuality, and identity within higher ed and thinking about um, what does this mean for kind of institutionality, right? So how do these forms of difference see themselves or how these forms of difference are incorporated within these institutional settings? And so um, I kind of went on this journey to try to answer some of those questions. And uh, that kind of landed me in a Africana studies uh, a PhD program. Um, and I was kind of open about wherever to, you know, um, I wasn't so much tied to a discipline. I more so wanted to go someplace where I felt like I could explore those questions 
um, and, um, and in some ways get the answers or, or try to explore the answers um, that was needed. And, and that happened to take me into Africana studies or Pan-African studies specifically is, is what my PhD in from the University of Louisville. Um, and so there I um, kind of dived, dived into this kind of really rich scholarship in um, not only black studies, but also within gender and sexuality studies. Um, and so a lot of my, my work, um, I never really left higher ed as a field of study. Um, I like to think that I just kind of brought some extra things to the table. Uh, and those things I brought to the table for me and in my work is bringing in um, this tradition of black studies and this kind of rich tradition of gender and sexuality studies and bringing those um, two disciplines to the table to think about some of the same things that I've always been interested in around higher ed to kind of broaden and deepen um, those, those, um, that, that exploration and, and, and kind of where I go with that research. And so, um, and so a lot of my writing and work, particularly in this question around culturally relevant leadership learning, um, you see this influence, particularly um, uh, this work that comes out of um, this blending of, of kind of black queer studies. So you see scholars like um, Kathy Cohen or, or Roderick Ferguson, um, you know, within this work, or even um, folks like uh, Michelle Foucault um, pulling in kind of philosophy and, and gender studies there. Could you talk to us more about the practical piece of your scholarship and thinking about what's happening on campus, the times that we're in, um, really thinking critically about incorporating this deviance, this approach mm -hmm. to what's currently happening on campuses? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, like, as I was saying about my own personal experience and thinking about how do I take this understanding of kind of being the outsider within, how do I expand this and think about this in a larger institutional setting, right? Particularly as we think about this concept of deviance. And I think where it has kind of practicality is, you know, we know, um, you know, through, you know, tons of research that when we think about the higher ed setting, the institutional setting, that oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes black spaces um, on college campuses are framed in this very cis heteronormative uh, type of logic. And we know that queer spaces on college campuses are oftentimes framed around this very white uh, Eurocentric um, kind of normative uh, framework, right? And so that really raises the question, particularly historically, where do queer students of color <laughs> um, find space but, but, but to the question of leadership, it raises this question of where do, um, how do, you know, where is the leadership happening for these queer students of color, right? If you, um, if, if the black spaces on campus, um, there's no room for you to kind of have, you know, a role in that leadership process, at least not publicly or visibly um, in, in ways, 
And in these white queer spaces, you also find a hard time <laughs> to, to find space for yourself right there. Um, then it raises these questions about where does that happen, right? And, and where does that kind of leadership um, and kind of um, community building and cultural building, cultural production things, where are those things happening, right? Or have, where have they happened? I, and what I find, and when we think about deviance is that oftentimes that pushes a lot of queer students of color, those who don't fit into this kind of more normative expectation, right? That, that, would, that it would take to operate in, in, whether it's the queer spaces on campus or those black spaces in campus, those who are not able to, um, to conform or adjust in some ways to those normative expectations, um, where do that leave them, right? And oftentimes that's, that's, that is happening off campus. That is happening, um, you know, like I say, in the nightclubs, in the behind closed doors, like, that is where that type of leadership um, learning and, and leadership development is, is, is oftentimes happening. And it is, um, and it's, um, you know, it in, and it's within, you know, cultural works that don't get the recognition um, that, that students get when they are a legitimized or recognized kind of student organization or student program, right? And, and this, you know, the practicality of this isn't necessary that, um, that those students, that work needs to be brought on campus, right? It's not saying that those, 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 that work needs to be institutionalized in some type of way, but it is about understanding that, you know, this is where kind of the privilege point of leadership comes in, is that, you know, if we're recognizing these um, forms of more institutionalized forms of leadership that is happening, um, then what does that kind of implicitly say about that, that work that is happening off campus and how those students might view that work, right? Um, it, it places value or this kind of valued hierarchy about what's important or what is seen as more important than one thing than the other, right? Um, and I think that really speaks to Kind of, I, I think some of the things that around difference that happens on our college campus and the role that leadership um, and kind of leadership education kind of plays um, in that. And I think this is a, a, a very pivotal role for leadership scholars and researchers because I think um, scholars and researchers have the opportunity to, um, to do work, scholarship and research that I think in that process kind of legitimizes that work and recognizes that work in ways that sometimes, um, you know, college, you know, like campus leadership programs aren't able to do. Uh, uh, and so I think when I think about deviance and I think about really incorporating deviance into, this, into our work, I think that's one of the things that it definitely speaks to. It speaks to um, how do we, again, move beyond that campus walls and think about that work that those students are doing um, in their communities and, and, and building community and safe spaces or, or um, for um, the most marginalized amongst us. Yeah, and that has me reflecting on even how do we continue to have the conversations on the campus, right, in the campus leadership mm -hmm. programs about how we define mm -hmm. the 
process of leadership, something mm-hmm. that, which, you know, we say that's simple, right? We need to have a conversation about how we define leadership, which it is not simple, right? Because of the social construction and everything that you're saying, Antron. Mm-hmm. And think about, you know, how do we need to be doing that differently on these campus leadership programs um, in yeah. curricular and co-curricular contexts, right? Yeah. And I, and, and I think about, I know your work, um, you know, really addresses this idea about, you know, um, how we incorporate activism into to leadership, right? Because oftentimes, or at least early on, uh, that wasn't seen as a form of leadership. And, and that's mainly because a lot of the activism that was happening was from students of color and other, you know, uh, marginalized or minoritized uh, individuals that, that were doing that activism. And so that wasn't seen oftentimes as leadership. Actually, it was seen as deviant behavior right right? until right until those um until those um um individuals and that work became incorporated into the institution right once you know those students of color uh of you know women um and other individuals once those those forms of difference became incorporated then we started to recognize that work as activism and, and, and again, I think what this deviant framework does is ask, ask us to go a step farther and say, okay, now that we've incorporated those individuals and kind of normalized that work, then who is being left out because of that, right? Who are those within those groups, um, kind of that intra-community work? Who, who's being left out through that incorporation? Uh, and so, it, it asks us to go a step farther there. Yeah. Well, where do you see this? Even taking it the next step, where do you see this work going? Or how do you want to encourage or give ideas for others to also move these ideas forward? Um, yeah, I think for me, it's continue to look and, and find, um, yeah, find places where this work is happening, where students, particularly historically, you know, I'm always thinking about historically about like where, um, you know, where did students of, particularly queer students of color, black queer students, how do they make space and, and find community, um, particularly, um, you know, at a time when the academy definitely did not recognize <laughs> or did not see the intersections of those identities and those experiences, right? And so, um, uh, you know, my, my, the work that I'm doing now uh, particularly looks at, you know, within this kind of Black paternalism or Black Greek letter um, kind of culture, right? And thinking about um, deviant behavior that has manifest historically uh, through those structures, right? Individuals who, um, for whatever reason, did not meet or did not um, fit within those kind of institutions, those kind of normative institutional structures within the black fraternal world and how particularly black queer folks created kind of their own subculture and counterculture around um, those ideas, right? Um, That that was typically underground, hidden, um, but created their own kind of life world that is there. Um, And so for me, um, and my work, I'm continually kind of seeking out other uh, kind of forms of this kind of subculture, um, you know, that, that might be there. Um, you know, I'm interested in um, things like, you know, um, 
there's a great documentary um, around um, uh, when the beat drops that looks at kind of this kind of countercultural uh, kind of black gay men in Bucking, right? This kind of dance form that 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 kind of um, that was birthed in the you know late '80s, early '90s with around black gay men. So I, I think about those type of countercultural formations that that have happened, and thinking about you know. Uh, what does that mean for for our students on campus? Because a lot of those black gay men that kind of created this kind of countercultural art form were college students um, and were inspired by their experience in college, right? And that is something that we don't see on campus. That is work that is happening off campus. And and what makes this work, um, I think, so important isn't just like recognizing that work or acknowledging that work, right, and studying kind of the implications, but 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 also thinking about what does that work say about our institutional structures? What I've found in this research is that by studying these kind of, what, what these so-called deviant, um, uh, these so-called deviant experiences, right? Is that it, it helps me to understand better about kind of how our institutional structures work and what is privileged and how power is operating. Um, with on our campuses, right? I think that has given me better insight into privilege and power and 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 kind of institutional dynamics than, than anything else that I've I've studied. So in many ways, I think again going back to culturally relevant leadership learning is that to think about CRLL as a, a instrument of critique. Uh, I think looking at these these kind of outside uh, or these kind of outcast individuals, um, I think they raise some of the best critiques of our campus structures and our and how our institutions work. And so I think getting back, getting back to your question, I find veered off of that, is that you know I'm continuing to 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 look for those things and continually um, to study that type of that that type of experience and that type of work and and thinking about what does that mean um, for, for our institutions, right? And, 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 and what type of change um, that th those implications can suggest. Yeah, absolutely. Not when, as you were thinking in, in your connection and thinking about um, the, the, the deviant, but the, what highlights when you talk about the organization is the historical legacy of exclusion inclusion, right? And how do you really think about mm -hmm holding a mirror up to, you know, this is historically what has happened. Now, how do we prevent this from moving forward when thinking about the policies, practices, organizational structures that we now put in place, so to speak, mm -hmm. and how those continuously exclude with the intention of, of saying that they are including, but who's being excluded? Um, so thank you yeah. for, for highlighting that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really gets to this idea of exceptionalism. And I think, I think whenever you're doing things within leadership and within these institutional settings, you have to be um, keenly aware of the exceptionalism that, that, that can be present, that is there. So our last question, uh, as we wrap up our wonderful conversation with you, uh, Antron, and thank you for, for all those highlights and, and recommendations. But to end on a brighter note, what, pro what protects your hope for future of culturally relevant leadership learning? What, what gives you hope about moving this work forward? Yeah, um, it really is the students. Um, what I'm seeing students do now and how students are organizing and how they're thinking about leadership um, gives me the most hope. 
and inspiration, I will say, because oftentimes students are already, it's always doing the things that, that, um, that this model suggests. Um, um, and, you know, and what we're trying to push forward is, is oftentimes is already there, whether they are uh, keenly aware of it or not, right? And so I'm always, um, yeah, just blown away by the work um, that our students are doing now and how they are organizing. You know, I, I spent this past year at Davidson College and one of the student organizations that um, I came across that I found to be really fascinating, um, there was a, a Black Films at Davidson uh, or, you know, a student group there. Um, and it was led by, um, uh, initially by some Black women uh, on campus um, who were um, uh, really feeling frustrated by their experiences on campus. And this included the experience within Black spaces, but also within the general campus climate. And so they came together to kind of organize a, a group um, as a you know, brave or safe space for them to kind of share their experience. And then, um, and then once they got together, they were able to even expand that to think about how do we think about this group beyond kind of a, a cis heteronormative binary, right? And they opened that group up from kind of black women at Davidson to black films at Davidson um, um, to really kind of, again, push back against these kind of normative logics that are there. Um, and so that type of work of how students are creating space and doing it in ways that is, um, you know, that, that kind of challenge kind of these kind of dominant paradigms of thinking and, 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 and knowing and being, I think that, that inspires me. I'm like, the students are doing that work. And so I'm always, um, yeah, amazed with, with what students are doing and how they are creating it. I think they, they are, you know, uh, within leadership studies is always this um, kind of tension between process and the goal, right, of, around leadership studies or, or around leadership. Um, and, and more and more students are understanding probably better than, than, than even practitioners <laughs> in the field that process matters, right? How we get to that goal matters just as much as the goal itself. And so it, I find it really um, inspiring and, um, and, and hopeful to see how students are handling the process um, within leadership. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Antron Mahoney, for joining us and sharing your time, your energy, your brilliance. Um, it's just good to hear your voice and your wisdom. And so thank you. Thank, no, you. thank thank you all. I, I'm I'm so honored to be invited here. Um, like I said, um, uh, I you know this is like returning you know home into this little former Florida State space, which uh, means so much to me and, and my work. And um, and so yeah, so just thank you, thank you for this opportunity. Wonderful. Well, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us and spending this time reflecting on um, moving forward. And until next time, keep it real out there.